1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: This is When Diplomacy Fails, and this is our mother-of-pearl-sized conclusion to the 1916 miniseries. If you are ready to bid farewell to the characters, the controversies, and the era in which we have lived for the past two months, Then for the last time, I would like to say, welcome to the mini-series. When Diplomacy Fails presents... 1916. A special centenary mini-series, exploring the context characters and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history, the 1916 Rising. Prime Minister was speaking tonight with his tongue in his cheek, he knows as well as I do that Ireland is one and indivisible as a nation, that the Irish nation is as great and as historic a nation as Wales ever was and ever will be, and that we had our Parliament in Ireland, Protestant Parliament as it was. We have said many times, and he cannot deny it, and I have heard my father say in this house, that he would take a Protestant Parliament tomorrow, provided it was an Irish Parliament for the whole of Ireland. We do not think of creed in Ireland. It is nationality for which we have always regarded. No one can deny that there are difficulties in the way of the settlement of the Irish question. I am the last one on these benches to deny that fact. Is the Prime Minister to make the abject confession that he has come back from settling the affairs of the world? That he has solved the question of Poland which has baffled European statesmen for centuries? That he has created nations like Czechoslovakia and the Ukraine and so forth? that he has solved the feuds and struggles of ancient nations, and yet that he and his government view the question of Ireland with despair? At any rate, I tell him this much, that if he thinks that by coming here and blandly telling us that British Acts of Parliament count for nothing in regard to Ireland, that the King's signature means nothing in Ireland, that an act which is passed three times through the Imperial Parliament and has received the mandate of the British people is to count for nothing when applied to Ireland, but that the same procedure is to count for something when applied to Wales, I tell him he is making the same mistake as when he and his government allow a certain set of people in this country to make threats against the law and order of the land, while they prosecute and execute others who are doing likewise. If anyone has a right to be heard, I have a right to be heard on this question. I cannot tell the House how intensely I feel upon it, Because I know that owing to my own personal action, I have been the cause of the deaths of hundreds of my own fellow countrymen on the belief that the word of England and of the Prime Minister of England was its bond, but that now, I know otherwise. Captain William Redmond, son of John Redmond and the sole member of the Irish Parliamentary Party to be returned in the south of Ireland following the 1918 British general election. In this case, he was inquiring about When Home Rule would be implemented, in a House of Commons debate, the 21st of July, 1919. The most striking thing about the Easter Rising was the absolute lack of mandate on any level for it to take place. Throughout the following years, right to this year, people have been dying in the name of the cult that he helped bring into existence. Irish journalist and author, Kevin Myers, speaking on Patrick Pearce in 2006. He gave his life. We are his heirs. He has given us the right to fulfil our destiny without violence. No person, no man can give a bigger sacrifice than that. Former Irish Prime Minister, or Taoiseach, Bertie Ahern, also referring to Patrick Pearce, speaking in an interview for the documentary... Patrick Pearce, Fanatical Heart, 2006 Come gather round me, players all, come praise 1916, Those from the pit and gallery, or from the printed scene, That fought in the post office, or round the city hall, Praise every man that came again, praise every man that fell, Who was the first man shot that day, the player Connolly, Close to the city hall he died, cartridge and voice had he, he lacked those that go with skill, but later might have been, A famous, a brilliant figure, before the painted scene. Some had no thought of victory, but had gone out to die, That Ireland's mind be greater, her heart mount up on high. And who knows what's yet to come, for Patrick Pierce had said, That in every generation must Ireland's blood be shed. William Butler Yeats, in... Three Songs to the One Burden. The man dies, but his memory lives. That mine may not perish, that it may live in the respect of my countrymen, I seize upon this opportunity to vindicate myself from some of the charges alleged against me. When my spirit shall be wafted to a more friendly port, when my shade shall have joined the bands of those martyred heroes who have shed their blood on the scaffold and in the field of defense of their own country and of virtue, this is my hope i wish that my memory and name may animate those who survive me while i look down with complacency on the destruction of that perfidious government which upholds its domination by blasphemy of the most high which sets man upon brother and lifts his hand and in the name of god against the throat of his fellow who believes or doubts a little more or a little less than the government standard a government which is steeled to barbarity by the cries of the orphans and the tears of the widows which it has made. O my country! My country was my idol, to it I sacrificed every selfish, every endearing sentiment, and for it now I offer myself, O God. No, my lords, I acted as an Irishman, determined on delivering my country from the yoke of a foreign and unrelenting tyranny, and from the more galling yoke of a domestic faction, its joint partner and perpetuator in the patricide whose reward is the ignominy of existing with an exterior of splendour and a consciousness of depravity. It was the wish of my heart to extricate my country from this doubly riveted despotism. I wish to place her independence beyond the reach of any power on earth. I wish to exalt her to that proud station in the world which Providence had destined her to fill. I, who fear not, to approach the omnipotent judge, do answer for the conduct of my whole life. Am I to be appalled and falsified by a mere remnant of mortality here? By you, too, who, if it were possible to collect all the innocent blood that you have shed in your unhallowed misery in one great reservoir, your lordship might swim in it. Let no man dare, when I am dead, to charge me with dishonor. Let no man attaint my memory by believing that I could have engaged in any cause but that of my country's liberty and independence, or that I could have become the pliant minion of power in the oppression and misery of my countrymen. In the dignity of freedom, I would have fought upon the threshold of my country, and its enemy should only enter by passing over my lifeless corpse. And am I, who lived but for my country, who have subjected myself to the dangers of the jealous and watchful oppressor, and now to the bondage of the grave, only to give my countrymen their rights, and my country her independence? Am I to be loaded with calumny and not suffered to resent it? No, God forbid! I have but one request to ask at my departure from this world. Let no man write my epitaph, for as no man who knows my motives dare now vindicate them, let not prejudice or ignorance asperse them. Let them and me rest in obscurity and peace, and my name remain uninscribed, until other times and other men can do justice to my character. When my country takes her place among the nations of the earth, then and not till then, let my epitaph be written. Robert Emmett, in a speech defending his conduct during the failed 1803 uprising, while on trial for his life... The 19th of September, 1803. Why did the 1916 Rising happen? What was the point in it? What did it achieve? All of these and many others were questions that we have seen addressed in this mini-series. It's been a long road, I wouldn't dispute that. You guys have seen my personal views on a subject and you have seen where I stand on the founding story of modern Ireland, but what do you think? Do you think Ireland's history was positively or negatively shaped by the 1916 Rising? Do you think its occurrence was justified by the presence of the British regime, or do you think the Rising was a mistake that Ireland has been paying for ever since? Do you at least feel confident to be able to argue now that many sides definitely exist to the narrative of the Rising, and that as a story it isn't as black and white as the mainstream version likes to suggest? Perhaps you feel confident enough to possess your own opinions on the events of Irish history, and tell all your friends and family about what Zack said and did here. Perhaps you don't think too much into it now, but in a few weeks time you'll be among friends and the topic of Ireland might randomly come up, and without realising it you'll begin thinking of the lessons, the controversies and the tragedies that we've learned of over the past twenty episodes. It was in many respects a winding tale, but it was one that had to be told in that way I feel, for you to really grasp how multi-layered Irish history was and still is. Do me a favour, never pluck 1916, nor any other event in history for that matter, out of the sky again. Imagine me worshipping my shrine to context, figuratively speaking of course, and challenge yourself to always seek out the truth in history. Ireland in 1916 was an occupied country. It was a country at war because its master said it was. British rule existed in Ireland because of force, but over the years it had become cultivated and comfortable for those that participated in its trappings or reaped its benefits. Furthermore, it was an empire that had changed radically from the oppressive regime that Robert Emmett, in that epic quotation at the beginning of this episode, so willingly and bravely defied. Britain treated Emmet and his compatriots barbarically in the early 1800s, yet such barbarity was largely absent from the Anglo-Irish relationship up to 1916. What was more, though it had been strained by certain elements within Ireland, the British administration seemed content to allow cultural, literary and musical organisations to thrive on the island relatively unfettered. It was far from a tyranny, let's be clear about that. Rightly or wrongly, it was a situation and relationship which enjoyed the support of the majority, and in return for the support the political party of Ireland had achieved home rule. John Redmond's party had won. It had achieved the ultimate goal of an Irish MP. Except it hadn't, and it never would. Instead of home rule, Irish society was hijacked and inspired to fight for more against impossible odds. In the name of the rebels who rose out of Ireland's ashes to proclaim a republic. What chance did Ireland have against Britain militarily? No chance at all. So what was the point of trying when it would merely waste lives and ruin the country? It was beyond the capabilities of the rebel leaders to grasp this reality, and instead they applied their individual pragmatism to a different situation, by accurately predicting what would happen if they, as a willing sacrifice, were made into martyrs by a reckless wartime British government. These men knew full well that even if Ireland was inspired to fight on, and even if the Fenian republican movement became the mainstream goal, Ireland could never be successful because it could never win. This was why Irish MPs sat in Westminster. Not because they were traitors, but because they loved Ireland and wanted to advance her lot through politics since force was not a viable solution. Call it resignation, even call it a lack of faith in the quality of their fighting men, but don't call it a lack of patriotism. Irish MPs didn't give their lives for Ireland in a literal sense, but they had dedicated their lives to Irish politics and the struggles therein, and their sacrifices were in my opinion far more impressive. We could blame the British for creating such a system. We could blame the British for invading Ireland and holding Ireland in an undemocratic version of democracy that ensured her people would never see true freedom unless force was applied. But if we do this we are fulfilling the prophecy that the Fenians professed. We also ignore the hard work and deeply held beliefs of the constitutional nationalists of the era who had accepted that the system was unfair but didn't see this unfairness as an excuse to resort to violence. And the British system was unfair. Nobody would dispute that. The British treated Ireland as the embarrassing cousin that it couldn't trust, but wouldn't detach itself from, and so never granted it the same level of freedoms or advancement as the other members of the United Kingdom. I'm not disputing this. What I am disputing is the idea that, because the British handed Ireland a bad deal, the Irish then had the right to resort to violence. And you may well say, come on, Zach, why should the Irish be the bigger man, turn the other cheek after all the British had done to her? And that's a fair question, but just look at Irish history, and imagine asking someone like Charles Stuart Parnell that very question, or Michael Davitt, or heck, even John Redmond, and what do you think they would have said? The point is, we can look retrospectively at Ireland, and see violence as justified if we convince ourselves hard enough. But this is viewing history backwards, because the very practice of violence in 1916 horrified the majority of people, and it is debatable whether those that voted for Sinn Fein in 1918 even expected a violent struggle to result from it. If violence was considered unacceptable to the majority of people that actually lived through those years and experienced British rule with all of its faults, how can we then turn around and say that the majority were wrong? that the minority were right, and that Ireland as a whole should have known better? How do we know better, no matter how many books we read, documentaries we watch, or interviews we hear, if we do not live through that era? Don't you think that if there were really grounds for a revolution in Ireland in 1916, more than the 2,000 or so individuals across the country would have turned up? It may have been the British that sentenced the rebel leaders to death, but before their deaths it had been the Irish public that had condemned them. Condemned them as traitors fighting for the Germans, as fools who had doomed the work of John Redmond, even as naive semi-soldiers who had ensured partition and engendered conflict. Ireland reacted almost universally in shock and with some anger towards the rebels. The executions of the major leaders would ignite a republican fire under the Irish populace, but as we've said before, this did not mean that the rebels were justified. To state so as to view history backwards. Instead, we should take our cues from the people that had to deal with the unwanted rising at the time. Ireland was a conflicted place in 1916. Cultural movements had made people more aware of Irish distinctiveness. Modern ideas were threatening older traditions. Irish soldiers were fighting for the British. Yet at the same time, the consensus of 1916 before early May and just after the surrender, was not one of support, and this should tell us all that we need to know. In 1966, before the awful troubles that we've examined broke out, the Republic of Ireland presented a glorious, militaristic version of its past. Overseeing the whole procession was Eamon de Valera, Veteran of the 1916 Rising and its most famous relic, now Ireland's president after serving years as Ireland's Prime Minister. Soldiers marched by, tricolours fluttered in the breeze, triumphalist slogans and images were carted out, as the surviving rebels gave their accounts of what they had lived through and the years of rebellion against the British were cast in a glorious, honourable light. It was an infamously one-sided portrayal of events. It was enough to prompt many to seek the truth, just as whispers from Northern Ireland seemed to suggest that something bad was on the horizon. Never again would Ireland commemorate its rising with such a confidently militarist tone. In fact, once the Troubles began, the official word of the Irish government was to refrain from commemorating it at all, leaving the way open for the more extremist groups to do the commemorating instead. Not until the Troubles comfortably ended by the early 2000s did Irish Prime Minister Bertie Ahern announce that commemorations of the Rising were again to take place, in time for the 90th Anniversary. Bertie Ahern had led Ireland in the peace process for Northern Ireland and had represented Ireland when the Good Friday Agreement was signed in 1998. He was a critical figure where embracing peace was concerned, but he was also awash with contradictions He displayed a portrait of Patrick Pearce in his office, since he claimed that he drew inspiration from that man. You heard his diatribe about him at the beginning of this episode, where he claimed that Pearce had given us the right to fulfil our destiny without violence. One wonders if Mr. Ahern had been paying attention either to Irish history during the twentieth century, or if he had read Pearce's works and learned of his beliefs at all since it was the actions of Pierce and his comrades that engendered the physical force republicanism ideology in Ireland, an ideology which called for force, not dialogue, and one which, ironically, Bertie Ahern had spent much of his time negotiating and debating against. In my mind, it is at this stage that a strange relationship with the Rising began within Ireland. A Fianna Fall, Senator, at the time of the preparations for the 90th anniversary of the Easter Rising in 2006, said the following. The real fruit of 1916 was the Irish state, since 1949 a republic. The majority of the different streams involved came to participate in democratic life. Only a small, fundamentalist, republican fringe refused recognition. Despite appearances, 1916 was not about imposing Dublin rule on a national minority concentrated in North East Ulster, but it was in reality more about going separate ways. The Irish government is determined to disentangle an honourable event from a much later bloody conflict in a divided community that never acquired democratic legitimacy, nor had the support of the Irish state. A parade will not only be about honouring patriots executed by the British, but about celebrating the achievements of modern Ireland. It is harder to find a more determined effort to put a political spin on 1916. But this extract showed that the Irish government of the time wanted to have the rising both ways. They wanted it to stand for universal democracy. They wanted to illuminate the sacrifice of the martyrs. They wanted to emphasise the clean nature of the fight. But they did not want to draw attention to the fact that this same rising had inspired the provisional Irish Republican Army, to wage its war in Northern Ireland decades later. The terror campaigns or the troubles that the senator refers to may never had acquired democratic legitimacy or had the support of the Irish state, but then again, neither did the 1916 Rising. Yet this extract also shows how the view of the Rising changed over time. In 1941, For the 25th anniversary, Prime Minister de Valera presented it as a symbol of independence and sovereignty. In 1966, that same de Valera combined militarism, triumphalism and modernity, while in 2006, the word was that the Rising stood for universal democracy, and that without the Rising, Ireland never would have gotten there. The changing nature of the Rising commemorations, can now be handily contrasted with how the Irish state presented the Rising centenary in 2016. Was it celebrating the achievement of freedom from the British? The Rising was again plucked out of the sky, but few acknowledged that the course of Irish history embarked upon after 1916 didn't actually achieve Irish independence for decades, and even then by political means hampered by 1916's legacy. Was it the sacrifice of the rebels and their heroism that we celebrated in 2016? As we saw, those men and women chose to die based on ideals that were anathema to the majority of Irish citizens. Was it the simple defiant clash of Irish arms against those of Britain that we celebrated? A strange sheen coded the 2016 celebrations. We were celebrating a hundred years of independence from Britain, with 1916 pinpointed as the beginning of Ireland's tale of national freedom. Yet so few stopped to address the cost of such a journey, or whether the drivers of such a history deserved such recognition or credit at all. A serious lack of debate seemed to creep into the 2016 commemorations. O'Connell Street, formerly Sackville Street where the proclamation had been read out, was blocked from the public, kitted out in huge floats and hundreds of VIPs were then invited to attend the Birth of the Nation ceremony, as events were also played out across Dublin, commemorating and celebrating what had gone down 100 years before. The only true allusion to events came from mostly warped narratives, when military actions were discussed or when those rebels faced insurmountable odds and maintained their sense of bravery and patriotism. It's almost like we've gone backwards, Not nearly enough dialogue has yet been had about what actually happened in the Rising, in 2016. The only thing that people seemed willing to do was revel in the fact that a few thousand men had risen up against Britain without asking why or attempting to untangle what happened afterwards, and where that Rising actually led us since. When the city centre was being decorated in time for the 2016 parades, and a large poster depicting older Irish politicians such as Charles Stuart Parnell and Daniel O'Connell were displayed, it was greeted with ridicule. How dare the Irish government display posters of men who had nothing to do with 1916, who would have wanted no part in such a venture, and who willingly collaborated with the British for years. Suggestions were made that the men displayed were nowhere near the level of patriot to deserve an exhibition in Dublin's city centre, even after the things you've learned from the last 16 episodes, you must be able to see what's wrong with this. Am I going crazy? This is the problem with the way 1916 has come to be viewed by a contemporary audience. It is seen as an almost universally good thing, and everything before it has to be a bad thing. If only people would look a little deeper and see for themselves, the peaceful patriots who gave their lives to the cause of Irish freedom while condemning war, Perhaps they would be inspired to look at Ireland's history in less black-and-white terms. Parnell never picked up a gun, but he did die from illnesses that were certainly aggravated by stress. Stress that came from a build-up of years of political pressure, sourced from leading Ireland's largest political party at such critical times. Parnell's leadership and cooperation with other individuals netted his Irish parliamentary parties vital improvements in land reform and other areas, ensuring that farmers no longer were so beholden to their aristocratic landlords. This was a key example of the political process surpassing expectations, and its worth was proved by the defection of men like Michael Davitt from the Irish Republican Brotherhood to the Irish Parliamentary Party, in the name of advancing Ireland's lot through political means, and from that point on abhorring all demonstrations of violence on moral grounds. Ireland's political history as a client of Britain contains many more individuals like these, but because the official version of Ireland's 1916-inspired history doesn't have room for them, they aren't talked about at all today, and instead the participants of the 1916 Rising are. As if constrained by its desperate need to have a great commemorative event, 2016 was organised as though Ireland's national identity depended on it, with committees established before even the 90th anniversary to ensure that it went off without a hitch. Mainstream audiences were greeted with cliched images of long-dead men, and told that these men had died for Ireland in the face of the British tyranny, with little or no context applied to either their actions or those of our larger neighbour. Plucking 1916 out of the sky is something which I said I despised even at the beginning of this mini-series, and for reasons like these you can surely see why. Rather than invest in documentaries that fully examine the context, characters, controversies or consequences of the 1916 Rising, we are instead given some truly questionable exercises in modern television. You may remember Trial of the Century, that documentary I alluded to in episode 10 and thereafter, wherein Patrick Pierce was put on trial by his contemporaries in an imaginative alternative history programme designed to approach the issue of Pierce's guilt, so to speak, from outside of the box. This concept, I felt, worked quite well, and faced with the evidence provided by his peers, some of whom, like Bulmer Hobson and Owen McNeil, were brilliantly played, Spewing real venom at Pierce for what he had done, we were left with a real cliffhanger, and it seemed as though it would be up to our own consciences to decide if Patrick Pierce had been guilty in the event of the 1916 rising. After all, this, in my view, would have been a fine way to end the Trial of the Century documentary, but instead they just had to have a third part. The third part of the special documentary was a supremely awkward fit for the rest of the series. Twelve modern Irish individuals from all walks of life were gathered together to resemble a mock jury. An Irish TV personality, Pat Kenny, chaired the debate. Clips from the documentary were shown and the panel of people were asked specific questions about the Rising as though they were experts. Incidentally, only one Irish history expert actually sat on the panel to advise them without actually taking part in the debates. Would it not have made more academic or scholarly sense to get twelve Irish historians to debate? Would that not have been more rewarding? It's not like we had a load to do. Anyway, these twelve people debated and before long it was clear that virtually all possessed incredibly latent biases and had gigantic gaps in their knowledge where 1916 and the whole era in general was concerned. No mention was made of Ireland before 1916, no accounting for context was given, and these people were allowed to spout off grand spiels of ahistorical nonsense without any real sense of judgement. They had evidently already bought wholeheartedly into the mainstream version of 1916, One lady in particular clearly had it in for the British Empire, whom she seemed to think invented slavery, empire, and all forms of disease. She probably had no idea that Britain was the first power to actually outlaw slavery, or that it spent the 19th century patrolling the slaver routes with its navy, ensuring that the practice did not continue unfettered. Her argument basically went that since the British were so bad, the Irish had the right to rise against them. She was far from the only chestnut in the course of the debate, though. Perhaps the only sane guy at the table argued that we had to look at the whole thing with context in mind. Just as he seemed to be getting somewhere, though, Pat Kenny, as chairman of the debate, issued a profoundly pointless, but no doubt entertaining, question to all involved. If they had been present in Dublin in 1916, Mr. Kenny asked, would they have taken part in the military events of the Rising? As each individual was asked, some said that they would because, gosh darn it, they just couldn't stand the British and all they had done with their empire. One man insisted that he would because he had lost a friend in the Troubles to the Loyalist side and that thus the Rising was personal for him. So personal he didn't even bother to investigate what the Loyalists or the British stood for during that conflict. The final man of note admitted with much shame that he wouldn't have gone out to fight in 1916, because though he was much embarrassed to admit it, he simply wasn't brave enough to shoot another man that he didn't know dead. As his peers, seated around him, nodded in collective sympathy, ''Oh well, we can't all be so brave, you know,'' their cooing seemed to suggest, I started to wonder what I was actually watching. And was I bearing witness to such a warping of history and human values that human bravery was actually being equated with a willingness to kill someone? Such a program left a bad taste in my mouth despite its promising start, but with a few exceptions, notably RTE's documentary series called 1916 and narrated by Liam Neeson, but harder to find on YouTube, most documentaries followed this trend. I was always left wondering the same things. Why is violence upheld as so admirable? Why are the dead, other than the rebels, so forgotten today? Why are the previous decades of Irish political compromise covered up? Why is there such a need to create the romantic image of the Rising that we can all be proud of? While on the other hand, there is such an unwillingness to give time to a proper debate on 1916. What are we afraid of? Is it in the name of men like Pierce, Connolly, Tom Clarke, Sean McDermott or Joseph Plunkett that we celebrated the centenary? In whose name did those men fight the British in a doomed struggle that ruined our capital and killed hundreds? Certainly not in the name of mainstream Ireland in 1916. How can we now be so arrogant to claim that Ireland as a majority was wrong to see the rebels as criminals, as some like to do? How can we look at Ireland in 1916, peaceful and stable as it was before the rising occurred, and state with confidence that the disasters which followed were the preferred course? How can we do anything other than obliterate the moral pedestal from which we examine 1916, if we see the real casualties and losses of life as worth less than the ruinous legacy of violent ideals that these men left behind? Objectively, the Rising did not achieve its aims. Objectively, the movements which launched the Rising did not enjoy popular support. Objectively, Irish people as a whole in 1916 saw the Rising as a calamity and a stab in the back. Who are we to challenge these individuals? How dare we be so irresponsible as to emphasise the military valour or glory shown by these so-called heroes? What kind of message do we send to our children when we tell them that conflict is better than political process? If we fail to investigate the actual realities of 1916, we thereby fail to understand why the past 100 years of Irish history was so painful, so steeped in hatred, wasted life and missed opportunities. In telling the truth of 1916, though, we do not sacrifice anything. We do not remove a grand chapter of history from our nation's past. remove any ounce of its proud heritage we do not question ireland's right to exist or the patriotism of any irish citizen instead we say definitively that nothing is more sacred than human life and nothing is more important than engaging in dialogue that can lead to peace to welcome others to show understanding to be willing to compromise to learn from our mistakes to forgive the mistakes that others have made that is the lesson of the history of Ireland. It was learned in the immediate aftermath of 1916 and it was learned after the Troubles. It was dialogue, negotiation and compromise that solved Ireland's issues. Such lessons are worthy of commemoration. They are a legacy of 1916 which we can be truly proud of. We can be proud of the men who accepted what the Irish Free State was in 1922 far short of what they had wanted, but on the way to becoming the independent state that they had dreamed of, and who worked for decades afterwards to further the dream of an Irish Republic, which the country as a whole then did want. In the nationalist camp, there have always been two versions of the same goal. One upholds the political process, the other insists upon violence, but all roads end in an independent Ireland. Irish politics was far from ideal before 1916. It was monopolised by one Irish party above all. It contained many old fogies from years before. It exercised only very little actual influence, since it could never enter into any government and only ever languished in opposition. I'm not disputing that, just like I would never claim that such an arrangement was anything other than unfair. But how much unfairness was worth a single dead man or woman or child? How much unfairness was worth the bloody struggle for independence, in a hopeless cause, against the bigger British enemy? How much unfairness was worth the bitterness of a terrible civil war, which turned families against one another in a futile conflict which could never resolve anything? How much unfairness was worth the troubles, or the atmosphere of fear and ignorance, or the random shootings, indiscriminate bombings, sectarian campaigns of murder and cultivation of divisions, how much unfairness was worth the engendering of violence in the form of the physical force republicanism tradition, with horrendous consequences for the shape of Irish history and how we see ourselves as Irish citizens today? I'll answer that. None. No level of unfairness is worth any of the suffering and pain that Ireland endured from the moment the Rising ended with Pierce's surrender to right now. I passionately believe, and I will argue this with anybody, ...that so few things in this world are worth the extinguishing of a single human life. But Ireland's fundamental historical problem was that those that acted in 1916... ...were the inheritors of an ideology which, since its inception, had never valued anything as much as the ideal, including human life. This ideal could not be compromised, and in a sense it had no place in a Pacific Ireland fulfilling its role as part of the United Kingdom. That fact may offend or irk some people, but it is a fact and one which we keep returning to. Our own instinctive objections to a state of affairs which sees Ireland ruled from London should not prevent us from seeing that state of affairs for what it was at the time. No Fenians could claim support for their ideology on a major basis because their ideology did not belong in an Ireland, that still valued the lives of its men, which it sent off to fight in Britain's foreign wars. If it had belonged in Ireland, it would have been vindicated by the majority of its population's support. But it was not. The bottom line of the Rising was that the people who launched it and led it cared more about the ideal than human life. We cannot begrudge them for it too much, because they were born into a world that had conflict and violence as ever-present partners, Yet at the same time we can criticise their participation because they claimed to represent a country which had been led by politicians and which was largely content to ignore the Fenian message. We must also address the issue of Irish progress. Was a better version of Ireland possible other than the one that we got? Would Ireland without the 1916 Rising have carved a better path for itself out of the last century than the one we know it to have carved? We can only ever speculate on such questions, of course. But in many ways, such speculation, when well informed, can help us appreciate what might have been. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. One thing is for certain, without the Rising we never would have had the version of physical force republicanism that we have today, especially not under the banner of Sinn Féin who, if you'll remember, had almost nothing to do with the Rising at all, but somehow became tangled up in the course of it. That Sinn Féin came to represent the republican tradition in politics is one of the ultimate oddities of Irish history, but it would never have happened without the Rising. Historian Fergal McGarry claimed that the years immediately after the Rising were profoundly shaped by it. Violence against the British authorities may have occurred regardless of the Rising, McGarry said, since the anti-insurrectionary volunteers' leadership had always been clear that conscription would justify an armed uprising. But that? The nature and the objectives of that war would have differed from the one that did take place. We cannot know how the British would have acted after the war if the Rising hadn't occurred. Would they have implemented Home Rule and implored the Unionists to accept it? Would the Unionists have been more willing to accept it, having seen their nationalist compatriots die alongside them? We cannot know for sure. I would say, maybe? Probably? On the other hand, we know that the Rising scared the Unionists into ensuring that partition went ahead and that from 1916 onwards, it wasn't the dirty word that it had once been. But cancel all this out. Consider that partition went ahead as it did in 1920, and that the island was still split between north and south. If the 1916 Rising had not occurred, this outcome still would have been preferable to the version of history that we got. Why is that? Because in the history without the Rising, no matter what happens, physical forced republicanism stays where it belongs in Ireland's past, and as a minority opinion. And even if the Unionists ensured that their dastardly plan to get their own region of Ireland was successful, even if David Lloyd George treated the Nationalists as he treated Captain William Redmond in July of 1919, when he claimed that Ireland was not a nation, a claim which we heard Captain Redmond react angrily to at the beginning of this episode, even if all of this awful stuff happened, at least nobody would have died in a pointless rising engineered for the sole purpose of making Ireland want to fight for something thereafter that it could never hope to achieve by force of arms. The oft-neglected fact is that the settlement the Irish Free State were left with after years of war was essentially home rule light and as a dominion within the United Kingdom. In other words, after years of violence and the engendering of a militarist tradition that followed 1916's footsteps, we were still only able to get a solution that wasn't even as good as complete home rule. The same complete home rule which Republicans had decried for generations as not going far enough, only to settle for its lesser version when they realised, oh, violence doesn't actually work when one is trying to force the largest empire in the world to accept something that they do not want to accept. It took the rebels and Republicans many years to realise, a fact which career politicians in Westminster could have told them for free, Instead, in their arrogance, these men charged themselves with the fulfilling of a destiny that was never within Ireland's practical grasp to begin with, only to make Ireland's population pay for the consequences when they failed. Their ideology shot, ambushed, bombed, intrigued, murdered, divided and spoiled their way to 1923. And what did they have to show for it? A version of Home Rule which was less than the one debated and passed in Westminster a full decade before. That, to me, says everything about 1916. Not only was it wrong in a moral sense, but the finished product brought Irish political progress backwards, not forwards. If the men of the Irish Parliamentary Party and the advocates of Home Rule had been left to their own devices, would they have done a worse job? Surely they would only ever reach as bad a solution, in a worst-case scenario, as the one reached in 1923, with partition, measured levels of legislative independence and, and membership of the British family of dominions. If that had been the result of the Irish Parliamentary Party's work, then at least one could take solace in the fact that the bloody and terrible series of conflicts hadn't been fought, the Rising, the War of Independence or the Civil War, and that no real human lives had been spent to get there. In the years after these conflicts, Ireland would define itself politically through the different sides of the Civil War. The Civil War was a watershed moment in Irish history, because it involved Sinn Féin effectively dividing itself between pro- and anti-treaty sides. The pro-treaty side wanted to accept the offer of the British government to end the War of Independence. The anti-treaty refused to accept its legitimacy, since the Republic had already been proclaimed. Fianna Fáil would be founded in 1926, and they were the offshoot of Sinn Féin that had been anti-treaty and had once fought against the Free State Government during the Civil War, and they had Éamon de Valera as their leader and guide. Coman Gaël, later reimagined as Fianna Gael in the 1930s, was the pro-treaty side of the Civil War, and the party that had picked up the pieces left by conflict in the 1920s. This split in Irish politics has remained intact, with a few coalition partners emerging in the meantime, with the result that a century later, the accusation that Ireland still fashions its party system after events that are a century old remains a valid one. Fianna Fáil presents itself as the inheritor of the republican tradition in politics, while Fianna Gael is the safer, supposedly more pro-British, centre-right party. One thing both parties did in the years after their foundations was contribute to the old maxim of the Irish Parliamentary Party MP, because in the first half of the 20th century, Irish politicians in Dublin continued to work with politics to take apart the Anglo-Irish Treaty and grant Ireland further independence within the United Kingdom. On Easter Monday 1949, this culminated in the proclamation of an Irish Republic. Ireland was a dominion no more. And it abruptly left Britain's Commonwealth of Nations, ending its old, reluctant relationship with London, apparently for good. Having arrived at such a point, having achieved a republic without violence, no attempts were then made to uphold the value of political engagement or activism, in contrast to the dissident republicans who insisted on continuing the fight in vain against this false republic. Instead, successive Irish governments attempted to awkwardly allude to the events of the Rising as the birth of the nation, while conveniently avoiding the story of how the Irish Republic of 1949 came to be. Already, historical airbrushing had occurred. The years before and after the Rising, and the political developments towards Irish independence therein, did not fit the proud story of the republicanism which launched the 1916 Rising and Set Ireland on its own path towards modern statehood, and so it was not included. More valuable it was to emphasise the valour, the honour, the selflessness, the bravery, or the sacrifice of the 1916 rebels, rather than admit that the rising had fallen short, and that Irish politicians had since done their best to pick up the pieces. Even today, in 2016, the 1916 rising was commemorated as the birth of a nation when in reality 1916 was still a long way off from the republic that 1949 actually created. In 1916 the Irish Republic had been announced for sure, but in practical terms it hadn't been born, in fact it had been barely conceived, only in 1949 would it truly be born, and even then it would fall short of the proclamation which the seven signatories so willingly signed. Yet, to admit such truths would expose cracks in the glorious founding edifice which constitutes the Irish national story, as well as possibly grant legitimacy to the dissident Republicans that claimed their mandate from the proclamation Patrick Pearce had made. So the truth was, and still is, largely buried to this day, perhaps waiting for the time when the truth will one day replace the mainstream version of 1916. So having said all that, try to remember what we heard in the introduction, where Sinn Féin President Jerry Adams claimed that the only way people have ever attained freedom is by taking freedom, and that is the lesson of 1916. Let us be clear, Adams then concluded, the reactionaries, the revisionists, the naysayers, the begrudgers, the modern-day Redmondites might pontificate and waffle about how wrong 1916 was we have a word for that 1916 was right the men and women of 1916 of the rising were right it was republic against empire republicanism versus imperialism and we know whose side we are on we stand by and we stand for the republic when I alluded to this in our intro, I did so because I wanted to show you guys what I was up against. Now you hopefully realise, having traversed the treacherous path left by my 1916 mini-series, what the truth of The Rising was, or, at the very least you understand that it wasn't the black and white noble sacrifice that Adams liked to portray it as. Was The Rising really right? Was the century of conflict worth the result? To put it simply, Jerry Adams was wrong. Not only was the rising not right, for all the reasons we've examined already, but Ireland had made great strides in her independence before 1916 had broken out, and none of that had been through taking freedom, as Adams claimed. The reality is so often ignored, but it is so vital to emphasise. A republic was not won because of 1916, it was delayed. 1916 did not empower the Irish, it led them to bitterly war against themselves for the rest of the century. 1916 guaranteed partition, it ensured decades of violence and division based on fear and a lack of understanding. 1916 betrayed the average Irish citizen when it occurred because it failed to actually take them into account. The entire series of events that followed 1916 can be traced to the British mismanagement of the situation. ...not to a genuine Irish desire to achieve complete republican independence. Modern Ireland and its sovereign status was not created by the 1916 rising. It was created following years of negotiations, diplomacy and compromise... ...and such things were always more powerful in Irish history as a force... ...than the use of violence when it came to achieving anything. Gerry Adams ought to know that, and he ought to have made a bigger deal of such facts... He was one of the key negotiators for the 1998 Good Friday Agreement that brought violence in Northern Ireland to an agreed end, after all. This is a complex island with a complex history. Its issues and challenges have confounded many. These same challenges have been handed down to us from history. It isn't fair that the subsequent generations of men and women in Ireland had to deal with what the English and then the British did in Ireland centuries ago. It isn't fair that this island has been divided, and perhaps always will be, over the issue of its governance, political status and identity. This is all true, but what is also true is that we don't have to define ourselves by the past. We don't have to define our actions by what happened a century ago. We don't have to look at people in the same light as people were viewed at the time of the Rising. We don't have to see different identities, different religious persuasions, different goals, different levels of radicalism. What is important is that we all love this island on which we were born. That love means different things to each of us, and it manifests itself in different ways. But to those that truly love this island, the last thing we want is to see it suffer. We want to see it embrace the qualities that make Ireland such an incredible place to live. We want to experience its highs and lows, but stick with it, because we know at the end of the day that this ruddy island at the edge of Europe, with its terrible weather and crazy mammies, is our home. If anything were to rise in 2016, 17 or any other year, I hope it will be this feeling of appreciation that Irish people of every walk, faith and background have for this land, and for their desire to understand those on the opposite side to them, so that they can work with them and live in peace. That is the ultimate lesson of Irish history. Whatever violence has thrown at us as a people, whatever losses we have incurred or challenges we have faced, we remained convinced of the fact that Ireland is worth it in the end. This is what motivated people throughout the last century to stand up and be counted, to reason that violence would never solve all of Ireland's complex problems, and that to really get to the root of the pain in the South, the North, the East and the West, people from all sides of the spectrum had to talk, Ireland had been through too much, it was accepted, for mere violence to provide the solution. The time had come to show one's love for Ireland in a less glamorous fashion, and to sit down and treat with others in painstaking discussions. Nobody would ever write poems about what the negotiators in Irish history achieved. Nobody will ever erect monuments to commemorate their considerable personal sacrifices. Their work will always be considered less romantic. ...slower and less interesting than their violent contemporaries. Very few such individuals will ever become famous. They will never be known in a romantic sense for dying for Irish freedom. They will never be known as martyrs. Yet these people give something inherently more valuable than their lives. They give their considerable talents, their skills, their patience, often their health... ...countless hours of their time and sometimes, when they fall foul of other violent individuals... They give their safety and the safety of their loved ones as well. This list of men and women who have worked to make Ireland better in the face of violence, who have sought dialogue in times of war, they are Ireland's true heroes. They are also her forgotten heroes, because nobody wants to hear of the realities of the political process, or the daily grind that leads to progress. Even if such mechanisms are the ones that contribute most positively towards our society, It is because of them and the processes they participated in, not the violence which they helped to diffuse, that created modern Ireland. It is through such figures that the true Irish peace was reached, is reached, and will always be reached. Thus it is the task of the historian to bring their achievements out of the woodwork, or at the very least give an alternative examination of the actions of their violent counterparts with an aim towards reducing such violent ends and means in value. We can do this by removing some of the sheen and reverence in which deeds of violence are held. I sincerely hope that throughout the course of this mini-series, I have successfully done that. I would need 16 more episodes to detail the debt which Ireland owes the negotiators, the speakers and the pacifists. It is highly likely such a series would get much fewer downloads than this because there is never much of a market for hearing about how people made peace. One would rather hear about how people made war. It's even the name of my podcast, When Diplomacy Fails Rather Than When Diplomacy Succeeds, because I know that the war, its reasons, its protagonists, etc., are inherently more interesting, both to the wider world and most of the time to me. The same is true for the Irish story, Few can list off the names of those that negotiated peace with Britain in 1922, who passed the 1931 Statute of Westminster, which profoundly shaped our modern state, or who actually proclaimed the Irish Republic in 1949. Similarly, few could remember the names of those that brought the Troubles to an end, as easily as they could recount the details of Bloody Sunday, or the hunger strikes of the early 1980s, or the terror campaigns of both sides therein. It's easy to recall the famous rebels and their deeds. It's easy to find narratives emphasizing the mainstream version of 1916's key actors. What is rarely mentioned is the loss that their deaths meant to Ireland. When I think of how Ireland really could have used an educational reformer like Patrick Pearce or a societal reformer like James Connolly, I get doubly angry and frustrated that such men committed themselves to die for an idea rather than live for a cause. For me, especially, Patrick Pearce up to 1912 was someone I really would have admired, someone I would really have liked to meet. Having read three biographies about him, the things he did in the name of educating the young and the name of reforming Ireland's woeful education system is something I can really identify with. I only wish Pearce had survived, that he had never become the martyr he's known for today and instead became an educational reformer and symbol of Irish academic progress. I can't help but feel that podcasting, bringing history to people in an accessible way, is something that Patrick Pierce would have really appreciated. The unfortunate fact is that he chose a certain path, and that this path resulted in more fame and notoriety, but in my opinion for all the wrong reasons. By 1916, men like Pierce and other signatories did not have the patience or faith in the system to use it to their advantage and try to see their own aims become reality. Nobody would dispute that the system had its faults, some would argue that the Anglo-Irish political system was by its very definition illegitimate. But such labels do not hide the fact that Irish history had years of rich examples of Irish cooperation and advancement under the British system. It also doesn't help to explain why the majority of the Irish population did invest their faith and time into the system and viewed it as the best opportunity for their country's advancement. A better understanding of what made the Anglo-Irish political relationship tick over and work for the decades up to the rising would be more helpful to scholars rather than a declaration in hindsight that such a political relationship was illegitimate from the offing, and leave Irish political history at that. Perhaps these people at the time of their deaths thought that they were proving a point or that they would never cease to be talked about or revered or depicted as legends. Perhaps they worried about their legacies or the families that they would leave behind. Perhaps they worried about the Ireland that they left behind. And they should have, because Ireland sorely needed their charisma, their tenacity and their passion over the coming years. They perhaps believed that they died for Ireland, but what they did in reality was ensure that their characteristics were talked about, but not quite understood, and that their motives were debated but never truly realised. The rebels left us to our own devices, and those devices could only ever achieve an anticlimactic version of what they had imagined, an uninspiring damp squib that doomed this country to decades of insular thinking and dogmatic ideology, where those that disagreed were silenced and those that disobeyed were condemned. People today like to talk about the legacy of the Rising as though they have delved into every work and read every source, and fully understand the nuances of what occurred in 1916 and what came after. For so long after the Rising, people seemed to accept the nationalist version of history that was the official version, until scholars began looking a little deeper. Revisionists showed us that there was more to the Irish story if one cared to look and the bad press that the Rising continued to receive during the Troubles from the 1960s onwards, meant that Oxford historian Roy Foster was able to claim that we are all revisionists now, in 1986. By that, he meant that all of us would accept that there was more to the Rising than meets the eye. Recently, though, perhaps since the end of the Troubles and with the regularity of significant commemorations with 90th and 100th anniversaries, less and less popular enthusiasm for seeking the truth seems to be present. Instead, people don't want to hear about what 1916 actually looked like, what the rebels actually stood for and what their ultimate ambitions were. They want to hold on to and keep bits and pieces of the rising that fascinate or inspire them, without delving deep enough to discover what it all meant. This is all well demonstrated I feel by the emerging consensus in 2016 that the Rising was an inherently good thing, a brave and noble thing and that the rebels died for Ireland. What people commenting on the Rising today often forget is that nobody asked them to die for Ireland and that the far more popular alternative way of serving Irish interests did not require martyrs but skill, patience and much dedication. As we've seen though, nobody wants a story of how John Redmond managed to push through the Home Rule Bill at last in 1914 by the use of those qualities. They instead want to hear how Patrick Pearce made grand speeches. Or how outnumbered rebels held their own on Mount Street Bridge against overwhelming odds. Or how brave the men were in the final hours of execution. Tapping into the mainstream desire for a simple story that provides excitement as well as inspiration Our own national figures and leaders are themselves too often guilty of skimming over the bare facts of events like 1916, since it is far easier to take what you want from it without having to explain why. Were more people to read into what actually went down in 1916 and from where such an event came from, I believe they would change their tone. If they did that, then the messages people like to interpret and then spout from The Rising of the militant bravery and defiance of the rebels, of the willingness to die for a cause, of the love for one's country that was so powerful it was deadly, would be replaced with lessons that are far more useful and tangible today. That is why it is often said that one can learn from history. We should be learning about the efforts of the peacemakers, and of the participants in due process to advance Ireland's lot against all political odds, where for decades an ignorant British establishment drew the ire of the Irish, but not their gunfire. This would better communicate to our descendants and visitors exactly what we have learned from our past. Because to hear people talk today, they sound more like the Fenians than the Fenians often did themselves. These wannabe Fenians like to talk of the sacrifice and the heroic glory of violence apparently unaware that violence failed to achieve Ireland's objectives many times over, that it ended lives, ruined relationships and doomed communities to decades of suffering and ignorance. They have learned nothing from the last century, and so long as they fail to be educated by the real history, so long as the mainstream version of Irish history is the one that remains popular, I fear this cycle of misinformation will never change, to our own immense detriment. I said already that Republicans and Radicals fought to a standstill only to discover that negotiation was the only option that would get them the rest of the way, and that this was a lesson already well understood by their contemporaries that had participated in the Westminster system, but the Radicals had initially spurned such lessons in favour of the gun. Similarly, the less we emphasise how we really came here and who we really owe our independence to the more likely we are to go backwards. If conflict is glorified and diplomacy glossed over, Northern Ireland's peace process could deteriorate, violence could seem more acceptable down south, armed action could be upheld as justified in order to advance Ireland towards a certain goal. Future generations taking their cues purely from the mainstream story may have a hard time untangling acceptable violence from the unacceptable, and in their inherited ignorance They could undo all the work that has so painstakingly been done. We could think that such possibilities are ridiculous, even insane. But so did those in Dublin when they went to sleep on the night of the 23rd of April, 1916, only to wake up the next morning and discover that their lives and their nation had been changed, changed utterly. I am so proud of my country, I am proud of the strides it has made in advancing beyond its conservative cage and considering others beyond the pale. I am proud that we have grown more tolerant, more understanding and more conciliatory as a society. I am proud that we are known for our charity, for our friendliness and for having the crack as a culture. I am proud to be Irish, I am an Irish patriot and I love my country. It is because I love my country that I want the best for it, and for its people that live within its borders. I will tell anyone that listens about my interpretation of the 1916 Rising. I will warn them that it is merely a story and not the story of its events, and I will always encourage people to go and investigate its additional issues for themselves. That is the inner historian talking within me. At the same time, I will not hesitate to tell them that the mainstream version of 1916 is wrong and that the real version of what happens needs to be said more often, even if people don't want to hear it. I will never tolerate any glorification of violence and I will always challenge those that claim violence is justified or was justified in the case of The Rising. To me, The Rising was a tragedy. And I don't mean it was a tragedy because Irish history didn't go the way I believe it should have gone. I mean it was a tragedy because people died. We too often forget that in history, people have died to shape our countries into the states that they are known as today. By doing this, by forgetting, we take for granted that violence was bound to emerge from the start, and that those caught up in it were merely casualties. But that is wrong. Ireland so easily could have experienced a less violent path and the possibilities for a brighter Ireland built on trust, on understanding and reconciliation were demonstrated through the real events of the last century, when Irish people from every background and persuasion came together to solve the problems that violence, fear and misunderstanding created. If Irish people were capable of that under the most trying and traumatic of circumstances, I can only imagine what those same people, would have been capable of creating, in an Ireland made, through peace. The Rising did engender a culture of violence, one which unfortunately manifested itself most brutally and terribly in the north of this island, where for 30 years plus, different belief systems waged war against the other. In a sense, it was the same tensions of the 1914 Home Rule Crisis, but it was transplanted only to Ulster, where it had the same predictable impact on Ulster that it would have had on all of Ireland, had civil war actually occurred in 1914 or some time afterwards. In my mind, instead of the mainstream narrative, what was needed for so long in Ireland's history was a movement or a message that promoted peace, that stood up for debate and argued for reason. That's why I felt the music video for Misha Era or I Am Ireland was so powerful. This was the song we heard in both the prologue and the epilogue and during the music video for that song the different groups are depicted with both sides weighing each other up and eventually fighting. Bullets are fired and men fall in tragic circumstances until, eventually, after feeling unable to watch the suffering anymore, a female figure appears. She is beautiful, wearing a striking green dress while her head is covered with curly red hair, her face is sombre and her skin is pale and she dances past every single one of the men, reaching both sides, calming the fallen soldiers and comforting the widows before fixing her gaze on the source of all of the misery, the battlefield itself. She walks gracefully to its centre but before she arrives she wraps herself in a white flag. Dancing beautifully, she weaves in and out of the men many of whom are forced to stop in their tracks at the spectacle. Her pained expressions of sorrow at her dead countrymen give way to a determination to save them through peace. And the longer she dances from each man to the next, wrapping herself deeper and deeper in the white flag, the more men pause and stop what they are doing. By the end of her dance, all men have stopped their firing, and most have put down their weapons. Some individuals from each side begin to walk towards the other as they wish to talk to their former enemy. Ending her dance, she looks longingly at both sides and slowly leaves the former battlefield, which is now playing host to negotiations as both sides that had once fired weapons now exchange words in the interests of peace. It is such a powerful image and such an important message as well we needed someone like her the female embodiment of ireland to wrap herself in a white flag and dance into every home every village and every community until the fighting stopped we needed her to teach people that no matter how much you bomb shoot or threaten you can never rid the island of ireland of one national group nor erase the history that created them we needed her To show people how to really solve their complex problems and live in harmony on the same land in the same country that they both loved with the same passion. We needed her to reveal to us that we weren't all that different from our enemy and that more often than not we wanted the same things and dreamt of the same outcome. To emerge from all the violence. That outcome was not some difficult to define polity but peace. Everyone wants peace, even if they feel they have to expend bullets, resources, or human lives to get there, everyone will want peace. The common belief today is that the troubles were ended too late, and that peace should have come earlier. Perhaps that is true. But perhaps if people had only believed in the messages that brought them to the peacekeeping arrangements decades earlier than they actually did, no white flags would have been needed in the first place. For me, Ireland does not and has never needed a Rising in order to be proud of itself. We can be proud of our country without the Rising for the reasons I've already mentioned, but even in history as well. The Rising doesn't have the monopoly on cool or supposedly heroic things that the Irish have done, and it is by casting the rhetoric and militarism of the Rising to the side and picking up a book about how Daniel O'Connell brought about Catholic Emancipation or how Irish writers, expatriates, or immigrants distinguished themselves over the centuries, or how the Irish in general never gave up seeking more freedoms, more ways to express themselves, more ways to get things done, that we can discover them. One of the reasons I so love my country is because of the people within it, and the history of Ireland is no different. The people that moulded Ireland over the last 200 years are by their very definition important but it is also useful to see many of them as unsung heroes as well. As many times as there was a period of violence, or an armed action that shocked the nation, or an incident which caused much division and conflict in Irish society, there has been countless more examples of brave individuals stepping forward and doing what it took to bring the country back around. To me, that's the real legacy of the 1916 Rising. It may have engendered violence and perpetuated conflict, but more important was the fact that its impact on Ireland gave its people the opportunity to speak and act, in the name of peace, to end such conflicts. I am proud to say that as many times as such people were required, they answered Ireland's call. So that's it, really. I think I've said all I can really say on the 1916 Rising. Any longer and we're in danger of going around in circles, or at least more circles than we have already gone in. I really hope you've enjoyed what I've done here, and that you do feel like you know Ireland a little better than before. If you've had a good time and you're hungry for more, somehow, I would encourage you to seek out the blog post I recently released onto which I have attached a bibliography for you of each source I have used, should you desire some further reading. The blog is of course the usual, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie, all one word and all lowercase. And if you could, perhaps, throw a few books my way for completing this mad beast, then I would really appreciate it. Perhaps I should throw you a few books for putting up with me through all this, but since... You don't have a blog, I'm going to ask you first. It has been a pretty stressful 8 weeks since I began this, since as usual I underestimated the task in front of me and I wasn't totally prepared for all the work I would have to do. Originally I had planned to make this 16 episodes in all, with 12 episodes filling out the bulk of the tale and the introduction, prologue, epilogue and conclusion rounding it out. I later changed this when I came to my own conclusion, that elaborating on certain aspects of the 1916 story would be more important than actually getting it done as fast as possible. Also, 20 is a nice round number to end a miniseries on, and it greatly pleases my OCD. Over the course of 8 weeks, with nearly 15 hours of content and over 100,000 words, I sought to tell you the tale of my homeland and why its history remains both relevant and controversial, to the Irish people today. I hope you were able to stick with the story, since I know there were a lot of names and issues in there that may not have been necessarily familiar. At the same time, I hope you were able to both learn something and take a positive message away from this mini-series as well. It would have been nice to have 16 more episodes and just let the monster keep growing. I could have looked into more neglected areas like the Irish Parliamentary Party in more detail, John Redmond's death, moderate republicans, movements for the arts and Irish language, the ins and outs of the proclamation, the female involvement, what other countries thought of the rising, the raft of debates that went on in the House of Commons immediately after the rising and before it, more in-depth profiles of all the men that were executed, the civilians of the rising in more detail. Patrick Pierce's life in more detail, despite all the time I've already spent on him, and countless other issues. I had to trim the fat on numerous occasions for this miniseries which, as you know, I hate doing, but I do feel that the overall project looks better for it as a result. I can always return to the era if I really want, but I think I've had my fill for it now, and I feel instead like I'm ready to depart for Pastures New after a little rest. As a little reminder, the music used for this mini-series comes thanks to the talents of Patrick Cassidy and his album 1916, so do check that out if you can't get enough of this unofficial soundtrack. The other music, of course, you may remember comes courtesy of Anna, soon-to-be Mrs. When Diplomacy Fails, so I'd like to thank her for not suing me as well, and for putting up with me over the past few months, as this project was oh-so-gradually hammered out. It was a long, long process, but I feel like it will stand me in good stead. So thanks for standing by me and not losing it, Anna. You're the best, and I can't wait to marry you. So what's next for When Diplomacy Fails and Zach Twomley? Well, history friends, stay tuned. I won't spoil anything, but let's just say I do indeed have plans. A huge thanks for sticking with us for the miniseries. Take care of yourselves. And I will see you very soon. Thanks and goodbye.